Hello and welcome to a special edition of the SPAC Insider Podcast with Joe Reese and Steve Cadenesi of the Boxwood and Silverbox SPACs. SPAC Insider founder Christy Marvin digs into their perspective, having priced SPACs in three very different market environments. Joe and Steve explain how they maintained their value priorities while IPOing their third SPAC in the difficult market of early 2023. They also discuss the relative advantages of having committed capital from forward purchase agreements at IPO versus the flexibility of diverse potential pipe investors down the road. What will the landscape look like once the SPAC cycle fully resets? And what does it take for a sponsor to bank a successful deal while the current macro conditions exist? Take a listen. excited to have you both here today. For anybody listening, we have the Boxwood slash Silverbox team here. You know, more commonly people know you guys as the Silverbox team because those are your two most recent deals. But today we do have Joe Reese and Stephen Cadenzi. They've actually traded positions over all three of their deals as chief executive officer and chairman of the board. I'm particularly interested in talking to you guys today, mostly because across your three deals, you've managed to hit three completely different spec eras, let's call it. Like the, the pre-COVID before the spec mania, you actually debuted Silverbox Engaged, which is your first Silverbox deal right in the middle of COVID in February of 2021. And then you've now post-COVID, let's call it, um, just IPO'd your third Silverbox deal. So you have a very interesting perspective on how the SPAC market has changed over the years. So, you know, with that being said, let's kind of maybe start from the beginning and maybe you can kind of give people who are listening, you know, how the Silverbox team came together, what your sort of thesis was on wanting to do SPAC deals. Sure, I'll kick it off and Joe can add color. Back in 2018, we did uh, Boxwood, which was the original iteration from an era, your first part of your question is the different eras. Of course, that was the full year issuance that year was 10 billion. We issued in November and kind of capped off that 10 billion. And SPACs were still very unknown to folks. We thought that was a big number at the time, but of course, 2020, 21 proved us very wrong there. So I think that era in terms of being in the market was there was a lot of education just on the basics of a SPAC. And from our perspective, we wanted to be in this and have always wanted to be in this from an institutional perspective. So Joe and I really started focusing on creating a team that could be around and nurture deals and and keep the pipeline going throughout multiple SPACs. And that's how we built such a robust team. We've got seven dedicated people and another 10, fluctuates about 10 advisory members that we can talk about later. Um, but that that first era for us was educating, building our team and educating uh, companies in the market about what a SPAC was and why the platform is something that's unique and a viable alternative for companies that want to go public in a different way and perhaps with some help from a very robust team. My background is I ran a public company called AECOM, uh, spent a lot of time in the capital markets, Joe was the uh, head of equity capital markets at Credit Suisse and UBS. So the number of transactions that we've worked on, we have a team from Macquarie that we pulled over. So we're really capable from an operating standpoint as well as capital markets standpoint. And then of course, 2021 was Silverbox engaged. Different people understood SPACs, but probably were overly enthusiastic around the SPAC product. It traded challenges, it also solves some of the challenges from the first era. So now we're well known from a from a product standpoint, but the euphoria in the market 
had people doing some unusual things and probably taking public companies that shouldn't be public business plans, ideas, things like that. And also creating unusual and, and unfair, unrealistic expectations of value in the market. You had companies out there saying, let's do a SPAC off, have 10 SPACs come and pitch to us. And the predominant winner was the SPAC that bid the highest. And that's not that's not constructive for a good SPAC ecosystem. And then the last era kind of to where we are right now is all of that kind of went away, tons of liquidations, but a core group of SPAC investors who want the SPAC ecosystem to be constructive in the long run. So you, you went away from, okay, anybody can raise SPAC capital to you can't really raise SPAC capital unless you do some very unusual contortions on the front end, like issuing rights and things like that, that make the dilutive aspects of SPACs extremely negative for a public company on the back end. And you saw the return to something normal, at least for Silverbox 3, because there's there's some savvy investors in there who appreciate that we need a constructive environment on the front end to have constructive back ends and birth great public companies. So there's a lot of unpacking there and Joe probably wants to add some color, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, well, one, first, Christy, thanks for having us both. Really appreciate it. You know, people forget that SPACs are not a new initiative. They've been around for over two decades. I think I did my first SPAC when I was at Credit Suisse in 2005. And I'm reasonably sure as a banker, I did the first SPAC that raised a billion and then the first SPAC that raised 2 billion. And that was back in uh, 2007 and 2010. Was that Tryon, Nelson Peltz's deal? No, it was uh, Nat Rothschild, Valar 1 and Valar 2. Right. They, they both went public and were traded and listed uh, on the London Stock Exchange. But the market, as Steve noted, it continues to evolve and it is still evolving. We actually think the latest iteration is a good evolution. During the, the mayhem of the pandemic issuance, anyone literally could raise money. Many people had never been fiduciaries. They'd never invested. They've never run a company. And frankly, putting money in the hands of, quote, that type of investor, I don't want to call it malfeasance, but it's sure not good judgment. And people were just chasing a risk-free yield play. I think with Silverbox, it's slightly different. Look, we're a committed team. This is our third deal. We plan on doing many more. We've got dedicated resource. We understand capital markets. We have a great advisory board. And we've got an institution to support taking a company public. So whilst the market last year was choppy for SPACs, frankly, it was choppy for all equity issuance. We do think that the latest evolution to a more fulsome set of teams that know what they're doing is healthy for the market. Yeah, I would completely agree. But it's interesting when I look back at the 2008 era, just you know, with your first deal, like you know, both Joe and Stephen, you know. <laughs> If I were to randomly select 10 people on the street and ask them what a SPAC was, you know, I'd be lucky if one of them knew what a SPAC was back then. Now everybody knows what a SPAC is. But did you find that with your first deal, just sort of starting from the beginning, did you find that more of an advantage or a disadvantage? Because at this point now, with SPACs in the news, generally for a lot of negative press, unfortunately, I think that's actually working against SPACs now. So would you say it was easier back then or harder? I think there, the education was just different. Back then, you had to educate them on what it was. A lot of people couldn't even spell SPAC. Uh, <laughs> but the education now is it's somewhat similar, but you're dispelling myths. Some that are based in fact, right? You had some deals that were poorly done, but as Joe alluded to, 
overall in the SPAC market versus the regular way IPO market, something like for 2021, 2022, 90 plus percent in either market have broke issuance. So I think there's a bit of negative publicity that we have to overcome. But the flip side to that is the SPAC product, I think, is still kind of misunderstood. People mm-hmm. think of it as just this kind of straightforward way of going public. It's actually fairly complex. There's a lot of upfront due diligence that you can do. You can tell a story over a longer period of time. You can get inside the projections and really understand what the company is going to do and tell that story. You can commit capital prior to announcing a deal, which we did in the Black Rifle situation. Those things don't really happen in the regular way IPO market, and people don't understand those nuances. And for us, we really get to know a company. And I think a broader group of investors get to know the company along that process. I think with Black Rifle, Joe and our CIO, Duncan Murdoch, went out on the road with the Black Rifle team and spoke to over 90 investors. While I think a regular way IPO, and Joe can attest to this more than anyone else, you know, might talk to a smaller handful of institutional investors. So I I think it's it's very robust. Also, by the time we closed Black Rifle, we had nine sell-side analysts ready to cover the stock. That period of time is is quite useful when you're birthing a, a real public company and making sure they're ready to hit that treadmill of reporting quarterly day one. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, let's um, let's let's talk a little bit more about Black Rifle too. Um, the timing on that was pretty interesting because you know you IPO'd that in February of 2021, which was literally the top of the SPAC market at that point. But then you announced the deal with Black Rifle, I believe, in November of 21, right after the Trump deal was announced. And you know, for people who don't remember, the Black Rifle Coffee Company um, focuses primarily on veterans or active military duty people for their product, which generally tends to lean a little bit conservative. So that was interesting timing. But more importantly, that's also when the SPAC market started to get really, really, really challenging. Um, And so when you were at that point, I would say, talking to investors about participating in a pipe, how challenging was that during that time? So I'll tackle that. I would say a, a couple of myths, though, I wanted to dispel. Black Rifle is actually not a conservative leaning, per se. People think that because, oh, your name is Black Rifle. It was founded by a veteran, a series of couple of veterans who were in special forces. Uh, we have a foundation dedicated to serving educational and job opportunities in mental health and wellness for veterans. But to put it into context, our direct-to-consumer business Two of our three biggest SMSAs are New York City and Los Angeles. Having homes in both, I can assure you, neither of those are conservative. (laughs) What we do, though, we do sell great coffee and great merchandise with the mission. And so a lot of folks want to cast Black Rifle and say, oh, it's the conservative coffee company. It's actually, we like to call ourselves America's coffee company. So I know that's a little bit of a nit, but whenever I hear people describe us as a conservative coffee company, I just want to clarify what we really are. We sell great merch and great coffee. And if you're liberal or if you're middle of the road or you're conservative, frankly, I don't care. What I care about is you like to drink our coffee. And I think the demographics of our purchasers would prove that. So and then talking about to get back to your the second part of your question, it was an interesting time. You're right. We announced the deal the first week of November. We had already raised the capital, though, at that point. But we had commitments from our institutional partners for the back end. And when we announced the deal, the stock was trading around trust as they normally do. And it went up uh, into the mid-12s 
that was about the time when the Fed started to make it very clear they were going to start hammering rates. Uh, growth sold off dramatically. And at the time, we actually then took the deal public in February, like February 9th or 10th of 22, the stock was back at trust. And we still retained well over 35 odd percent of the trust, but we also had $300 million of committed capital. So our business plan was funded. So I wouldn't say it was challenging during that period what, for the investment that we made. It was challenging to communicate effectively with investors. And as Steve noted, you know, Duncan Murdoch, our chief investment officer, and myself, we did over 90 one-on-ones with institutional investors to talk about Black Rifle, to talk about the business, to talk about the markets. Then we priced and the stock immediately went to 15 bucks. Uh, subsequently, later, you know, in that quarter, it hit $34 a share. Uh, that surprised me. <laughs> That's, <laughs> I probably shouldn't have been 34, just like it shouldn't be five now. And Steve and I have a view. We, we might be wrong day to day on value. We will never be wrong on backing a well-run, long-term good opportunity company because we fund companies, not ideas. So the market was pretty volatile back then. We feel pretty happy to have closed announced the deal and then closed and taken it public when we did. Look, we, we've got a yield curve now, right? And at the time we announced the deal, I think the one month treasury was 14 basis points and then it went up to 400 basis points. That definitionally makes growth stocks uh, worth less. So yeah, it's been a pretty volatile ride, but we still think that good teams with good stories can sell through virtually any market condition if you are bringing the right product to market. Interestingly, we IPO'd our first two SPACs when the pipe markets were open and then closed them when pipe markets were closed. Yeah. And now we're IPOing when pipe markets are closed. And we hope that's a, a strong sign for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny, ahead of this podcast recording, I was looking at some of the dates for some of your deals. You guys have really interesting timing. <laughs> the Boxwood merger, uh, you closed that in February of 2020, I mean, if you had waited three weeks, we would have been in lockdown. I mean, so your timing was amazing. Like you literally walked out the door and like Wiley Coyote, you know, the safe fell right behind you. I'll tell you a funny story about that. Joe and I were on a call with one of our uh, underwriters at the time, and we were getting feedback in the marketplace for Atlas at the time that we ought to stay in the market about a week more just to drum up some more uh, investor interest. And I asked the question, does anyone see any downside to staying in the, in the market a week? And our underwriter, to his credit, because no one really even had heard of COVID at that point, he said, well, there is this strange virus coming out of China. Oh. <laughs> so we closed it. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I mean, literally, I think the date I saw was it was February 15th or something like that. I mean, literally, 14th, if you waited Valentine's three weeks, Day. yeah, if you waited three weeks, like the market would have been shut. <laughs> would have been really challenging. But yeah, but you know, kind of going back to Black Rifle, there is one other question I did want to ask you about that, which was, you know, how many companies did you actually look at before you decided on on Black Rifle? And what was the due diligence process like back then? Sure. That's a good question. And I wish more people would ask it because Steve alluded to the difference in the process for a regular way versus a SPAC. So we did desktop due diligence on over 200. We signed NDAs and lifted up the hood on over 70 companies. 
we ultimately had eight LOIs before we actually selected Black Rifle. And then the diligence process, we spent over four months doing due diligence before we announced that deal, partly because Steve and I are investors, not traders. I'll give you a great example. Atlas, our first SPAC, uh, we took it public, as you noted, in February of 20 until it went private. And by the way, with the warrant and the stock, it went private at over $14 a share. Uh, I had never sold a share of stock. I'd never sold a warrant. Uh, I had converted. The reason is we are investors, not traders. And once we find a business that we believe in, that we believe we can help and that we believe will be appealing to the public markets, we want to own that for the long term. And so that's why we did four months of due diligence on Black Rifle. And our next deal, we will probably likely do four months of due diligence or, or at least the same quantum, whether it takes the same amount of time, that's a function of brute force. But in terms of what we do, we are firm believers in really understanding the business as well as the operators before we birth it to the public markets, because we're responsible for that. And we take that quite seriously. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you said you guys are investors, not traders. Um, so with Silverbox Engaged, your first deal, which you IPO'd in February of 2021, you actually built into that, um, I believe, a $100 million, $100 million forward purchase agreement, which candidly, you know, back in February of 2021, you almost didn't need, like the market was so hot, but you kind of had the foresight to put a forward purchase in. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, about why you did that. I mean, were you just trying to think ahead? I mean, did you already get a sense that you just wanted to play it safe by having it there to access if you needed it? So I'll tackle that and then Steve will jump in with some color. Look, every time we do one of these things, we learn something that we think we can improve on from our first deal to our second and then our second now to our third. And the genesis of that was, as Steve noted, when we did the deal, when we announced the deal, the pipe markets were closed. We ultimately got it funded. And look, uh, Steve put Black or uh, Steve put Atlas on his back, and I put Black Rifle on my back. And maybe that's why we're good partners. We tag team things, but we each had a different experience in the market. And at the at the Atlas time, not having committed capital, we felt was a disadvantage. Which is why when we did our second spec, we did it with Engaged. Some have said, "Well, why didn't you do that on your third spec? Did you have a falling out? Did it not work?" Actually, quite the opposite. It worked well. Uh, we have a great relationship with Engage, but we also wanted to have the ability to bring in other investors with whom Steve and I have both worked. So we will still have a deal with committed capital is my bet based on the market, but we also feel toggling to different types of investors to meet the target is a better path forward. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Uh, if we wanted to do a nuclear deal or an energy transition deal, that would have one investor. If we wanted to do another consumer products deal, that would have an entirely different type of investor. So what we want to make sure that we do is we want to match the right capital with the right opportunity set. And that's something, frankly, that we learned when we did our second SPAC. It narrowed our focus, not to the point where we felt like we didn't have a good aperture. We did and we still do. But given the nature and the breadth of our advisory group, which Steve can talk about later, we've got a lot of talent that we want to be able to maximize what they can bring to a deal. And we don't want to narrow that focus at this point until we see what's coming in through the aperture. Yeah, that makes sense. By the way, so the other item I wanted to sort of touch on also is how fast you closed Black Rifle. I believe it was just under 100 days of announcing the deal from announcement to shareholder vote, which, you know, for anybody listening, and most people are probably well aware of this, the amount of time for SPACs to close a transaction has increased significantly over the past year, year and a half. That was lightning speed under 100 days. Can you talk a little bit about, A, how you got that deal through so quickly? And maybe just talk a little bit more about that. 
I think part of it is philosophical differences. We, we don't really understand why SPAC sponsors aren't prepared to file their S-4 right after announcement. Part of it is a lot of SPACs announced and they didn't have committed capital lined up yet. So they use that time to do it. That just time can kill deals. So we, we believe in getting that capital locked up, then announcing and don't announce until we're ready to file the S-4 in due course. And then because we have that dedicated team and experience of public company disclosure, I was a former CFO of a public company. Obviously, Joe used to work at the SEC, by the way, and we have excellent uh, attorneys that, uh, and we believe in fulsome disclosure when we do file. And so we've had a very good track record on just about everything that we file with the SEC of not having a lot of comments from them. And if we do have comments, they're very easily addressed. So that that's, I think, why we were able to close so fast as we were ready to spring into action the minute that we announced the deal. So, Joe, you were at the SEC, huh? Well, it's showing my age. My first job out of law school back in the mid-80s, I worked at the SEC for five years in the division of Corp Fin. And when I left, I was a special counsel there. The that's good news. Bad news is the good news is I'm pretty familiar with the workings. The bad news is it tells you how old I am. But, <laughs> but you know, people forget, look, the SEC is a disclosure monitoring agency, not a quality monitoring agency. Quality is monitored by the market. And to Steve's point, we don't announce a deal until we're ready to file. The mistake I think a lot of folks make, they announce a deal June 1st. They don't get their S-4 on file till December. Steve's right. Time kills deals. And uncertainty in the market for that long benefits no one. Doesn't benefit the investors, the target company, the sponsors. We just think, we, as Steve said, we have a philosophical difference. We believe you announce things when you are ready, not when you think it's expedient. So we will get all of our ducks in a row and make sure that when we announce a deal, we are ready to file and close that deal. Yeah, I think that's certainly the right way to go. But, you know, let's talk a little bit more now about your third spec. Again, you know, you kind of, both of you kind of alluded to it earlier, but we're in a very different market environment than 2020, 2021, even 2019. But before we get into more uh, specifics on Silverbox 3, what was it like trying to IPO that deal in February of this year? Maybe compare and contrast to your other two. The big difference is that we were trying to lead the market with Silverbox 3. In, in 2021, everybody was, as Joe said, anyone could get a deal done and raise back money and the terms were the terms. Here, we were saying something to the SPAC investors that we, again, to our philosophy is like, we need to get the SPAC market back to something that's constructive on the front end. We want to address a couple of things. We want to address dilution. Let's do a smaller SPAC and still chase large companies. Let's have less warrant overhang and less promote. And But you have to help us with that SPAC investors, because if you want to have these rights and things attached, you're basically guaranteeing that the back end of birthing a public company is going to be a very dilutive event and you're not going to have good backends. So if you want ultimately, which is the the real good SPAC investors want that warrant to have value on the back end. And if you want that warrant to have value on the back end, then you have to have a deal that doesn't overlay overly dilute the investors. And what we found was the fundamentals long-term SPAC investors that have been in and around this ecosystem, that message resonated with them and they supported us. So, and we said, Hey, let's just do a hundred million. And I think we ultimately came out with 120 and they kept asking us to upsize and we were disciplined on that. And the core 
point was they want sponsor teams that they have a strong feeling can get deals done. So we have that track record. And in return for that confidence, we will give you the right terms on the front end, which for us was a third warrant, 18 months, and, and none of the other strange things that have happened on some of these front ends recently. So we were very pleased by that. So it was different. It was a, a more robust conversation about why we thought that was the right way to go. And we were skating to where the hockey puck was going, so to speak. But mm -hmm. we found that it was a message that was well-received. Yeah, Christy, I'm glad you asked that too. It's funny, there was an article yesterday in Bloomberg where someone made the comment, oh, they came to market, but they couldn't raise more money. That's a simplistic view because it was our choice. As Steve noted, we wanted to lead the market, but we wanted to do what was right for two particular constituents. One are the target companies. Personally, a billion dollars, look, I've raised those billion dollar SPACs. All they do is saddle the sponsor and the ultimate target company with way too much dilution. You mm -hmm. cannot trust the trust, as Steve likes to say, so you can't bank on it. Uh, and two, the amount of dilution that target companies face is pretty draconian. And second, the investors are better off when you have a right size SPAC, because it's more likely that those warrants, again, with less dilution, will accrete real value. At the end of the day, we always want to buy great companies, but we want to deliver great results. Look, we had a large SPAC. Our second SPAC was $345 million. And I will tell you, that's not an inconsequential amount of dilution to absorb and through both the sponsor, promote, and the warrants. And I said before, every time we do one of these, we learn something and we want to make the market and our product better. I actually think this makes the product better. We will still be able to deliver the same back-end capital. We can still hunt for one, two, $3 billion enterprise or market cap companies, but we can do so in a manner that reduces dilution to the target and increases the likelihood of value creation for our investors. And at the end of the day, that's our job. And if you look at us relative to the other SPACs that are out there that haven't liquidated or gone public recently, we are the least dilutive SPAC over 100 million with the longest tenor. And that's important for us because we're out there talking to companies and they have options and we have a great team and lots of value add, but we're also the least dilutive. And that's a, a great fact to have on your side. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I remember looking at your first silver box deal, you ended up canceling a good chunk of your promote too, right? You forfeited and canceled the, and I can't remember the exact amount, but in order to make the transaction work. So yeah, noted on size, uh, smaller, sometimes better. But you know, listen, Bloomberg doesn't really understand SPACs. People involved in SPACs do. And that's well, all that you know, a great example. You just pointed out something that I think a lot of people missed. Look, Steve and I take our responsibility to make our investors' money quite seriously. The reason we canceled a portion of our founders promote was because the market had changed. Remember when we announced the deal in November, growth was on a tear. Mm -hmm. By the time we then took it public, growth had sold off between 40 and 60%, depending on the sector. And we just didn't feel it appropriate. So we sat down with the seller who we really had a good working relationship with and negotiated a compromise that benefited them, that benefited us. And most importantly, it benefited the investors because we got to reprice that transaction to something that we felt was more appropriate for the market at that point in time. Yep, totally agree. The other thing, interesting thing to note for Silverbox 3 is you have a somewhat unique structure in that it's similar to what the Churchill team did with their SPACs, but you've got an advisory group made up of former senior operating execs that used to work in leading S&P 500 companies. It sounds to me like you've got this roster you can kind of tap as far as both sourcing target companies and maybe providing sector expertise. Maybe you can talk a little bit about you know how that strategy came about and why you decided to implement it. 
we actually started creating the advisory team with the second SPAC, Silverbox Engaged. The first SPAC was really focused on engineering construction, my background. And our philosophy, again, is we need to understand the companies. We need to be able to diligence them. We need to add value operationally, financial reporting, whatever they need, investor relations, whatever it needs. But if we were going to be around for a long time doing multiple deals, we had to go deep into different sectors. So obviously we have financial services with Joe's background, engineering construction, my background. We have our Macquarie, ex-Macquarie guys have deep experience in a broad area, a group of areas. But we wanted to have one, we wanted to increase our network of both opportunities for finding companies that made sense to SPAC and also for then diligencing them and understanding them. And so we started to really go through our, our network and find people who ran companies, sat on existing boards of companies in sectors that complemented our backgrounds. And that's how it happened. So there's a number of them. They all write checks into the SPAC risk capital. So they're all very committed. We have regular calls with them. We actually have one tomorrow coming up. And they just go into interesting sectors. We have Tom Warner, for instance, who was the founder and CEO of Sun Power, was there for 15 plus years. We've got Dean Hollis, who was really helpful for us on Black Rifle, who's the chairman of the board at Haynes Celestial and ran Conagra. We've got, uh, you know, just a, a ton of people that, and we've been augmenting it. We have Eric Prower, we just spent a bunch of time with yesterday, who's in the prop tech field used to run Zillow Homes and is now at Builder Tech and on and on. We can go through all of them, but they really add a significant level of value at different places in the value chain of finding a deal, both sourcing and diligencing and even on the back end and helping us put people in who can help run those businesses and, and using our Rolodexes for finding good, capable people. Yeah, another thing too, Christy, part of, I think, what differentiates our approach when you take a company public, a lot of people mistakenly think that you won the race. We actually think it means you just started the race. And just providing capital, that's great, but that's not really value add. What value add is are the things that Steve mentioned. You need to be able to help on financials, strategic implementation, technology, market vision, connectivity, etc. So we will only apply capital where we can also apply market know-how for that particular domain. And we think that makes us, frankly, a better partner than virtually any other SPAC team. And frankly, a better partner than a regular way IPO, where I got to tell you, a lot of companies aren't ready to be public. You know, Steve noted last year, whether you were a regular way IPO or a direct listing or a SPAC, it kind of didn't matter. Everything got thrown out, baby and the bathwater. <laughs> However, if you, if, you, right, if, you do a, if you go public and you've got a, a seasoned team of operating executives in your milieu, that have been to that rodeo, it's going to help you. And that's our goal. We want to be good partners, not counterparts. And if you're a good partner, you deliver more than just capital. You deliver operational know-how, capital markets know-how. You roll up your sleeves. And Steve made this point, which we think is pretty critical. If you're listed in our book, our IPO, our RS1, you've written a check. There are no free rides. Uh, that's that, that's to us because that way we know everyone's committed. Joe just hit on it, but I'll put an emphasis on it. That upfront value discovery is super important. You don't get that in regular way IPOs. You kind of get the prepackaged thing and it is what it is. So the only way to do that upfront value discovery in lots of different sectors is to have these kinds of experts that are that are engaged in our process. 
Yeah, I, listen, I have I've always said that's the SPAC's biggest advantage, right? If you do a traditional IPO the day after pricing, company's on its own. But with the SPAC, you know, you have this amazing team with a ton of experience helping you, you know, shepherding you through the process of going from private to public. It's a huge advantage, particularly now. It should have happened in a lot of these companies because I can't tell you how many companies that we saw presenting themselves to the SPAC market in 2021 that were going from 10 million of revenue to 2 billion in three years. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, business plan on the back of a napkin, you know, plan to make money in 2028. <laughs> But yeah, I agree. But anyway, uh, going back to Silverbox 3, I think the thing that has been missing for the past year, as far as IPOs is, um, let's call it the IPOs from, you know, the bigger banks. And I think part of the reason it was so easy for you to sell your IPO in February of this year was just so much demand for, let's call it, you know, the tier one teams. So let me ask you this. Why now? Why IPO now? Where, Where do you see opportunity in having a SPAC vehicle right now? I think there are a couple of things that caused Steve and I to hit the go button now. First, there had been a tremendous amount of redemptions. So a lot of, quote, competition was no longer in the market. Now, I'd like to think they're actually not competition because you had made the comment, hey, having a SPAC, you have an experienced and exceptional team. I think that's true for Silverbox. I'm not sure that's true for other issuers who, frankly, weren't teams. It was a couple of folks who said, oh, my bankers will show me a deal. Well, that's really not how it works, at least if you want it to be efficient and productive for investors. So that was one. There was a dearth of competition. Two, Steve said it best. We wanted to lead the market. We believe that we are innovators. We think the product is innovative. And we always want to be on the front edge where we can control the dialogue, where we can dictate for the betterment of investors, how things should and are done. So we also thought it was good to be basically the first IPO to be done by a bulge bracket firm in nearly a year for a SPAC issuer. And third, because we have 18 months, our first two deals, Atlas, we went public on Boxwood and then IPO'd Atlas in 15 months. On our second SPAC with Silverbox, we IPO'd and then de-SPAC'd in 11 months. I'm not going to promise history as a guide, but when you have a dedicated team, you can get things done markedly quicker. And so having that 18-month window for us and leading the market in a reduced competition environment, both for SPACs and regular way IPOs, we just felt it was a good time to lead that and be actively on our front foot looking for deals to try and birth into the market. Speaking of looking ahead, what are your thoughts on the future of SPACs and their role in the financial markets? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, we do. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, Steve and I go back and forth about this all the time. Look, the market had excess in it. it. It just did. You can spin it however you want, but the harsh reality is when that much capital comes into a market opportunity, you are going to have situations that are funded that should not be. We're actually pleased that a lot of that money has been flushed out and remediated back to investors. And when we look forward, we do think there is a real opportunity for industrial, institutional investment managers and advisors to be sponsors in this market. We never did this with the idea of being one and done. When Steve and I got together back in 2018 to form Boxwood uh, Silverbox, it was with the intent to be an institutional repeat issuer. We will be back, knock on wood, we will be back in the market with more product because we do believe that the innovation that SPACs give to the capital markets are welcomed if done properly. And you can do it properly when you don't focus on the excess. We've built a team, 
We're sustainable. We've got a lot of intellectual horsepower. And so do I expect volatility? Absolutely. But Steve and I both feel very strongly that if you build a good team and deliver really good product to the market, you'll be rewarded and you'll be able to continue A, raising capital and B, providing good companies to the market. Sounds good. I like that. <laughs> so let me ask you another question. You know, as, as a sponsor team, right? That, you know, we, we've sort of alluded to this previously, but you know, you have seen a variety of different markets. But right now, what do you think are the biggest challenges sponsors face right now? With the understanding that there are different types of sponsors, but let's say, you know, sponsors similar to yourself. Like what are the what are the biggest challenges you face right now? Well, I think it's the same challenge in all three markets is the committed capital on the back end. It's the magic dust. As Joe mentioned, we are fond of saying you can't trust the trust. So whatever deal you do, you need to find capital on the back end. So our pipeline is actually more robust than it was certainly for Boxwood, where we had to create it from scratch. For Silverbox Engage, we were you know, we had had source in the market and we had a reputation. And then now there's a lot of companies, we've actually had inbound calls from folks that have been in and around the SPAC market and either didn't do something or, or weren't ready to do something then, but potentially are now. And that's very different. So I, we feel really good about our pipeline. But for anyone who's doing this, if we're giving advice to others, if you don't have a strong network and the capabilities of raising capital to meet whatever minimum cash condition you're going to put into a deal, then you shouldn't be in this. You, you need to, there's a lot of things you need to be a good SPAC sponsor, including sourcing. But if you don't have the back end capability, you're really at the whims of the market. And that's why you see a lot of these liquidations and a lot of deals just kind of lingering out there because they're still hunting for money. So that's kind of how we see it. And I think going forward, that's why Joe's painting the picture of how SPAC market is going to look going forward. It's going to be I would expect, and maybe some of this is, is how we would like it to look, a small number of institutional sponsors that have the capability on the sourcing, diligence, and back-end capital, and using what we, again, think is an innovative platform of the SPAC product to help companies that perhaps might be three to five years away from going public the regular way and helping them accelerate that into the public markets by going with a SPAC team that kind of solves a lot of the problems that big banks don't necessarily add to the process. They're very good at getting you through that IPO process, but they're not helping you create and become a great public company on the back end. I think that's how SPAC sponsors should be. And I would hope that instead of 600 out there at any given time, there's, there's far fewer and they're very capable and companies that are out there thinking about how to get there view it as a real interesting opportunity and, and viable substitute to go in regular way or, or any other way. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question, basically asking you predictions for the SPAC market, but it, it sounds like you pretty much answered it. But any last thoughts on, let's call it Q3 and Q4 of 2023? I mean, do you think if the market sort of, meaning the larger capital markets, if they sort of stabilize, meaning no more rate hikes, inflation sort of moderates, do you have any thoughts on where the SPAC market might be? Well, I would argue the market is always stable, but there's also always trading volatility in any particular sector. I think right now, new equity issuance, it's a risky proposition. So my, my answer to that earlier question, in addition to what Steve said about the availability of capital, is the volatility and how unconstructive new issuance has been in the IPO market. That's an issue. So when I think 
when I look forward and I say, okay, what's the market going to present us? Look, at some point, the Fed will pause or become dovish. That will happen. I don't know when, but it will happen. Inflation, in theory, coupled with uh, the Fed move, will abate a bit. But I think the real thing that needs to happen, people need to go more fully risk on into the equity product. And right now, the market is there's some desire for a risk on appetite, but not what you've seen previously. And I think the SPAC market, much like the regular way IPO or general equity issuance market, will benefit when you have more investors focused on growth or focused on new issuance than preservation of capital. You know, we had, we just came out of a good month for big tech. I think that's a good sign. I don't think it's the only sign, but I do think it's a good sign that certain sectors are starting to see a return of a risk appetite from investors. That will benefit SPACs as well as regular way equity issuance. And I think that will happen. And my, you know, Steve and I are fond of saying hope is not a strategy, but I do hope that by the end of Q3, beginning of Q4, we will start to see a more constructive equity issuance environment, and that will for certain benefit de-SPACs. And since we've already gone public on the front end, we will be in a position, hopefully, to then bring a good company to market. Yeah, yeah. You know, the other thing that I've been sort of watching and I've seen a lot of articles on recently is just how much private funding has dried up recently, which has left a lot of interesting later stage companies cash starved, capital starved. And, it, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm always thinking like, does, you know, is that a, a good thing for SPACs? Um, I think we'll have to wait and see, but Q3 and Q4 should certainly be interesting for sure. Well, yeah, it's part of, part of the broader risk off problem, whether it's public capital or private capital, uh, the appetite to deploy equity investment today is less than it was 12, 18 months ago. Again, it will revert. I'm hopeful that it doesn't see, at least in the case of SPACs, the same level of of exuberance. I don't believe it will. And it won't because of the, the excess that Steve had mentioned earlier. I do think you'll see a more rational pace of issuance on SPACs. And with good teams, you will continue to see high quality B SPACs. Yeah, I uh, I think everybody who's worked on SPACs is, is hoping for that. I don't think anybody wants to go back to 2021. It was it was exhausting. <laughs> well, investment bankers want to go back because they make money, win or lose. But as responsible sponsors, we do not want to go back to that era. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk to me today. I think it's been a really interesting conversation, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys do with Silverbox 3. Hopefully, maybe we can talk again at that point. You can give us a little bit more uh, inside baseball on how the SPAC market's shaping up at that point. Well, we appreciate it. Thanks for having us.